This is Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? Hey, welcome to Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? I'm Molly Stillman, and this is a podcast where I get to sit down with a different guest each week and have raw, funny, often brutally honest conversations about the things that matter most. Your faith, business, life, and everything in between, where we each learn how to be good stewards of the things we've been entrusted with, even our stories, and how we can use those things to serve others and leave our families, our friendships, and our communities a little better than we found them. I want to create a space where people are unafraid to be themselves and unafraid to ask the questions the rest of us are thinking. My goal is to make you laugh, cry, and laugh till you cry. My guest this week is Dr. Emily Smith, also known as your friendly neighbor epidemiologist. She is the author of The Science of the Good Samaritan, thinking bigger about loving our neighbors. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and Surgery at Duke University and at the Duke Global Health Institute. And during the COVID pandemic, she also became known as the friendly neighbor epidemiologist through her social media outlets, which reached over 10 million people. Before joining the faculty at Duke, she spent four years at Baylor University in the Department of Public Health and was a research scholar for two years. She received her PhD in epidemiology from the Gillings School of Global Public Health at Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill, and an MSPH from the University of South Carolina. She's been married to her pastor husband for 20 years. They have two incredible children and a spoiled golden retriever and a very friendly golden doodle puppy. Her new book released this month, The Science of the Good Samaritan. And today we are talking all about that, The Science of the Good Samaritan. But man, I am telling you, this conversation was so good. Emily is brilliant, number one. She's just just one of those like real, real smart people. But she's able to take very complex things and make it in a way that we can understand it. But she, uh, her heart is just huge. And I was really encouraged by this conversation. I really loved the way that she approaches things with love and care for others and for differing opinions and perspectives. And oh my goodness, I just, I really adored her. And I really hope that we can be, continue to be friends. Um, I think you're going to love this conversation. So without further ado, on to my chat with Dr. Emily Smith. Well, today is a very exciting day. I have Dr. Should I call you Dr. Smith? Uh, Dr. Emily <laughs> <No>. Smith on <laughs> the podcast today. You may know her as the friendly neighborhood epidemiologist and also new author of The Science of the Good Samaritan, Thinking Bigger About Loving Our Neighbors. Um, but here's the thing is before we we get into like, you know, how smart you are and all you know and all those things. I have some questions. Okay. Um, So here's the thing, Emily is, um, well, one, I mean, we live very close to each other. And so uh, I was like, man, I wish we could do this in person. We could just hang out, but that's okay. Yeah. You're you're right down the road from me. Like maybe probably like 10 minutes from me. Um, I'll be there in just a minute. Hold on. I know. It'd be great. Um, (laughs) But okay. But here's my question is your PhD is from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Go Uh Tar Heels. And you work at Duke. And so I, think I, have, I know where this is going. I have questions. So yeah. <laughs> how do you, are you a Duke fan? Are you a Carolina fan? Are you Switzerland and you're just neutral? Um, I just, yes. 
Emily, I have questions. And so I need you to explain to me how this works. <laughs> I, well, maybe I need to know, are you, what color blue are you? Oh, maybe I'm, I need I'm to a, know that first. I'm a, tar, I'm a Tar Heel blue. Oh, you're totally. Okay. Oh, so I can answer that way. <laughs> Just kidding. I know. I, I am both. And maybe that's like wow. my book and also is all throughout the book. So no. one institution gave me the PhD that got me a job and the other's paying my paycheck. So yeah. I'm like, go all blue, you know, which is my personality too. Anyways. Hey, I love it. You, yeah. So you're Switzerland, you're neutral. I, I am. A, yes. <laughs> which is rare. Like you're a rare find, especially in this area. I mean, it's, it's people have their opinions. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I will just hoop and holler or you're like people go team go team and I love watching sports so it's not that I just don't care I do care I just want everybody to win you just want everybody to win I love it uh it's fantastic well it's really funny (laughs) so you're but you're different than my friend so um my daughter's best friend uh from school her mom so like you know my friend um but I we became friends because our daughters were friends it's that kind of thing not that we were friends and then our daughters were friends in any event. So she is an enigma, an anomaly. I don't really know how you want to describe it. So she went to Carolina for undergrad all four years, but is a diehard Duke fan. And I do not understand it. And I'm like, wait, so like you didn't go to Duke, but she grew up in Durham. So that's part of it is she was like, she grew up a Duke fan, but then Duke was obviously way too expensive. So she went to Carolina and I was like, how did you not but I was like, you didn't go to a game? Like you didn't buy she, she said she never bought a single piece oh, of paraphernalia. Student. Oh, yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yes. I'm like, I don't know who you are. You it's something about the water here. <laughs> it, it either makes you go opposite or all people or I don't know. <laughs> really hardcore one side. I know. I know. Anyway, so these are obviously the most important of the topics that I wanted to cover is, uh, but in any event, um, obviously there's more important things. So Emily, give us the Emily 101. So tell us who you are, what you do and how you got to where you are today. Emily 101. That's such a fun question, like an intro question. By the way, I'm seeing your lovely books behind you. We're going to be great friends. You know, I am a voracious reader. Love it. Oh, girl, me too. How long do we have? And your bio described, you describe yourself as a loud laugher. Is that right? Oh, come on now. We're totally going to be friends. Yeah. See, both my parents were recovering alcoholic Irish Catholics. And so there's just a lot of loud laughter in my genetics. And it just is what it is at this point (laughs) in my life. And I'm 38 now. And it's just it's it's not going anywhere. So (laughs) yes, I love that. I I mean, if there is an Emily 101, I feel like that I've embraced that more the past couple of years. Perfect. Um, Yeah. Through in this book, too. I mean, I feel just fully more of me than probably I ever have, which includes lots of joy (laughs) and trying not to be ashamed of it. Yes. Um, Yeah. Not be embarrassed by it. Let's do it. I, like you said, I live here in Durham, been here for, well, I got my PhD from the other blue, blue. depending on who's listening right now. I'm kidding. The right blue, the other blue. Uh, And we were here for four years. My husband is a pastor. So he was a pastor here in Durham of a, a small, great church. Um, then we were in Texas for four years and then back. So I would say I've been at Duke since like 2016, physically or non-physically, but all of my research stayed here. Yeah, I'm originally from a tiny, tiny town in eastern New Mexico 
which is 10 miles from the Texas border. So mm. it's really West Texas culture. Right. When you think of oil field and flat land and great people. Right. Um, and just grew up in the church. My parents were worship leaders at our church, a charismatic church, and I married a Baptist pastor. So it is fun. Naturally. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And now we go to a liturgical church and I'm still trying to figure out, you know, when do you sit down and when do you stand up and get it wrong all the time? It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we're working on it. But I, we were also the house growing up where missionaries came and stayed. Mm. And so I just grew up wanting to be either a missionary or Sandy Patty, you know, like little girls growing up in the church. So you wrote her a letter at 11, haven't heard back. It's fine. Maybe this book will <laughs> like launch Sandy Patty, my 10 year old heart. Sandy Patty. Yeah. But I would just ask the missionaries, you know, questions about where they've been and what they are doing and why they want to do it. So I've just loved people in the globe for a long time. Fast forward to college and I went to a really tiny college in uh, Plainview, Texas called Wayland Baptist University. It's And I met my husband there, but I was pre-med because I knew if I wanted to do something around the globe, it's probably going to be helping people mm. with health. You know, I, I loved science. If you read the book, you see the best picture of me by my science board, like modeling by it. Bless. I was so proud of that thing. Yes. But I, yeah. So I thought my only contribution could be medical school. So I was pre-med. We got married and right before going to medical school, my husband's first job was across the country in South Carolina. So I had a gap year before medical school and like most good nerds, I just decided, let's just get another degree. So I was enrolled as an MPH, a master of public health. And day one of epidemiology was when I went, oh, th I, this is what I think. In the previous year to back up, I went on my first mission trip to the Mercy Ship in Honduras. Um, and there, that was really my first stint with poverty up close. You know, I'd heard about it and read about it, but not really seen it. And I remember not really wanting to help the individual patients, but asking more population health questions. You know, why is poverty so big here? Why are there so many kiddos coming in with conditions that they just waited too long? And those are epi epidemiology questions I just didn't know about. But I did that day one of epi when my professor said it's looking at diseases that affect people at risk and then doing something about it. Mm. And I remember thinking that's the science of the Good Samaritan. Mm. Um, then I got a PhD in epi and now that's what I do. And now that's what you do. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I, I'm so fascinated by, cause it's, it, I remember it cause I've, I actually have gotten a, a chance to look at your book. I haven't finished it yet, but I've um, been able to start it and, I'm always fascinated about like the, the origin of how people yeah. get to what they're doing for a living. And especially for you, having grown up in this, you know, very mission focused home mm -hmm. at first, I mean, on the on paper, it's like, OK, being married to like a Baptist pastor 
and then also growing up in a charismatic church, but now you're an <laughs> epidemiologist. Like on paper, it doesn't, Ow. we're just going to be honest. It doesn't make yes, sense. For and sure. So, so um, <laughs> but as I begun to dig more into your story and how you were just sharing now, it's, it, it's all starts to make sense when it's like, oh, you're really, and the fact that you're just neutral blue, you're neutral blue because you care <laughs> So deeply about people. And it's funny because I am an Enneagram too. So like I am also very helper focused. I'm very, I've been on missions trips. I'm very, I care about people unless they're wearing Duke blue. And I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I wore black just for you today. Here is the thing though. Real. (laughs) See, Emily, this is what you get when you come on this podcast. This Uh, is lovely. Here's the thing though, is here's how, you know, Jesus has really worked on my heart and my husband's heart. Now I did not Full disclosure, I did not go to Carolina, but I did when I first moved to North Carolina, I worked at a radio station and I always loved Carolina. Like, I mean, I was Uh grew up in, you know, I want to be like Mike. So I (laughs) was a Michael Jordan fan, of course. So I always loved Carolina. But um, when I first moved here, I worked at a radio station that covered Carolina games. And so I was at all the Carolina games. So I was ingratiated very quickly. My husband did go to Carolina and then both his parents went to Carolina. So he's like, oh, Tar Heel born, Tar Heel bred. When he dies, it's Tar Tar Heel dead. It's big. But uh, my point being is here's how that you can really tell that the Lord has worked on both of us is um, the last couple of years. So we open up our home for Thanksgiving to just anyone who wants to come and who doesn't have a place to go for Thanksgiving or anything like that. Um, And we got connected with an organization that works with international students who are here studying abroad and you know, who have for sure never been to an American Thanksgiving, but, you know, they're not going to fly back to China or India or wherever um, for Thanksgiving because, well, one, I mean, it's not a big deal for them. Um, So we invite them into our home. (laughs) Well, they're all Duke students. And so, you know, we're breaking bread with the enemy. (laughs) Yeah, it's like that communion table. (laughs) Come on now, that's called redemption. I love that. I might meet some of my students. I'm just saying, yeah, they're fantastic. They're all brilliant. Um, But I remember uh, in the uh, spring of 2022, during Mike Krzyzewski, like we had dinner, we had some of them over for dinner the day of the last game that Coach K was was coaching in Cameron. And I just would like to you know, reference back to the scoreboard of that game as to who won that game. And we dined (laughs) with Duke students that day. So it was, you know, the Lord, the gospel really is just at work. Man, transforms us. (laughs) We are done. Yes. Your mic drop. Exactly. (laughs) Anyway, so as I was saying is, but you know, it's, I can see in your personality how caring about people leads to a job like epidemiology. I, that's not something you want me doing. Um, But I love, there's a story you tell, and I want to kind of lead this off into our discussion that kind of leads, you know, really is the heart of your book, but also the heart of just what you do. And it's this question, uh, there are two questions asked, and this is right at the beginning. And I love the way you start this book. And the two questions asked in the story of the Good Samaritan and how those two questions really are the basis, the foundation for everything that you do. And so can you tell that story and unpack that a little bit? Because I think that really does give us some lenses to look at this through. Yes. Yes. And before that, I think about the enigma of being a pastor's wife and a scientist yeah. is not lost on me either. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big time. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, typically they don't, they just do not fit right. together. Um, which is why the book was 
I think important to write more from the personal perspective, because to me, it's hard to disentangle mm-hmm. the two. So I wanted to to get to write that up as well. But I've gotten a lot of that, like, wait a minute, who are you? And yeah, <laughs> yes. So the two questions um, is the story of the Good Samaritan, where a lot of people are familiar with it, that I have read that probably a billion times yeah. since a little kid. And I just missed the two questions. And then, well, let me just tell it. And then I'll tell you the, yeah. the last part. So there's a guy who comes up and ask Jesus, you know, all these type of questions. And then he finally says, who is my neighbor? And instead, Jesus did his whole Jesus thing where he like, you know, Judah Karate answered that with a non-answer, either a parable or a question. And he decided to tell him a story. So he tells the story of a man who's hurting on the side of the road and two people walk by. Uh, and he's very specific at what he said in the story and what is not said, which I think means something to us. But the those two men that walked by were identified as religious leaders. And I think, you know, they they could be representative of power and privilege of that day. Um, and we don't know why they didn't stop, but they didn't stop. And then there was a Samaritan that walked by and he just stopped and helped the man. And not only that, and this is the part that I missed growing up, he bandaged him up he took him to a place to recover and then he paid for all of it. I mean, he, he valued the health of that man more than just a Band-Aid or acute needs. And so what made that man stop? So anyway, Jesus finishes that story and then he, he answers the man's first question, who, who is my neighbor with who was the neighbor? And to me, I think the postures are different because it feels like who is my neighbor could be asked of what is good enough to be good enough. Is 10% of our tithe fine? If I give to a food pantry once a year, that's fine. You know, how how good, how nice do I need to be? How much discomfort do I need to have? I don't know, whatever that is. But when he said, he answered it with who was the neighbor, it was after somebody had already done things that were fairly extravagant. We would call extravagant, but I think to Jesus, it should just be normative. So I think those two questions of which we identify with, who is my neighbor versus am I actually being a neighbor? I mean, the tenses, like the past and present and future tenses are different, but I think the posturing is different too. I think that when I was reading that, because it really, you were right. I I mean, I've read that story I mean, a lot of times. And um, I had never really stopped to think about the, and I love what Jesus does in so many of those situations where he just turns it on its head and and he answers with a non-answer or answers with another question. Um, And so often we can just skip over that. And so I love how you've really unpacked this in a way that, again, it was illuminating for me to think about, okay, well, what what does that mean for for me? Um, But that was uh, clearly a very pivotal turning point for you in the work that you do. And so can you share, you know, how that has evolved for you and how the story of the Good Samaritan really led to you unpacking the science of the Good Samaritan? And what does that actually mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, that day one of epidemiology, when my professor was talking about it. He he's very excited and a huge advocate anyway. So he kind of hooked me that way. But when I realized epidemiology is the science of the Good Samaritan, it was 
it's a science of quantifying who is most at need so mm-hmm. that we don't walk by. Um, and so for me, the centering, the starting point, the normalization is the margins. And that's why it feels like it's the story of the Good Samaritan just naturally, because the Good Samaritan story starts with the margin. Jesus certainly started with who was on the side of the road and using that as a depiction of who neighbors should be. So it it feels very natural as a person of a Christian faith to do the type of science that I do because it's quantifying those that are typically overlooked. Uh, you know, my my day job is to is working here at the Duke Global Health Institute, and we are trying to go to find who is most at risk of children not getting health care when they need it. And so in a lot of places, that is going to the margin of the margin of the margin um, in places like Somaliland and Burundi, which are historically overlooked. Um, and we can talk about that history because it's in the book, too. But they're still overlooked, and that has ramifications of them being a very poor country of no fault of their own. So my job as an epidemiologist is to measure that correctly so we don't walk by with policies or with money and aid. Yeah. Um, Well, can you unpack? Because I I do think that that is an important piece. Um, And that's one of the things, too, that you talk a little bit about, actually, in Chapter 6, which is titled Unknown is the New Fame. And you you tell that story of when you go on... when you spent the time on mercy ships and, and you talk a little, a little bit about that, but I think that that is an important point about the history of this and how we really, in order to move forward and in order to care for the people who are on the margin of the margin of the margin, um, we have to make actual structural and systemic changes because historically we haven't done that. And so that is what has yeah. landed us in the position that we are in and, and these people in the position that they're in. So can, yeah, can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. And the point of the book is you will hear and also throughout the whole thing Because how do you become a neighbor that is more than just a good enough, who is my neighbor person? I mean, anybody can give food to a food pantry. And I think we should. Or, you know, give money to whatever once a year, donate clothes. That's fine. And also be the type of people who on a normal Tuesday stop on the side of the road on whatever that looks like for them when someone's hurting. Because something intrinsically made that man stop. If I think Jesus would have pointed out in the story, if it wouldn't have just come from the inside of him. So how do we become those people um, of neighbors where it just happens as naturally as just breathing or laughing or talking? Yeah. And that's what the first part of the book is, is how do we center our hearts and our minds correctly so that it just comes, you know, naturally to us. And a lot of that is what you just said. It is, it's recognizing the history of a place or a people I think it makes us better neighbors. Right. Um, and to give you an example of that, so I tell a story in 1885 where there's 14 uh, all white men around a horseshoe table. This was in Belgium. And they had a huge map of Africa on the back of the wall. It was only high-income countries that came, though. No one from Africa was there. The Sultan of Zanzibar requested to come and was denied, basically. So at the end of that meeting, it's called the Great Scramble, but the African continent was spliced and diced between those 14 countries, and that was colonialism. Basically, who got what part of Africa? 
The problem with that is they spliced and diced the continent in ways that were not along just natural, the people that were living there. And so groups and um, communities and families were just broken up between two different countries that had never entered the continent. If you fast forward now, 100 plus years, the uh, the spaces and the lands that were cut up the most have the highest rates of poverty and the most unstable governments still. And I think that's important for us to know because sometimes in American or in Western spaces, there's so much shaming that can go on to people that are poor or countries that are poor. I mean, we hear a lot, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or mm -hmm. something here. Just get a job. I hear that too. Yeah. And gosh, it is if we can get rid of that shaming, I think we can understand the systems that support or do not support people. And it makes us better neighbors because we do something about it. The other story, you know, that's very, um, for a lot of people, they probably won't go to Africa, but just here in Durham, where you and I are at, mm -hmm. if you look at redlining, if you go back oh, yeah. um, into, yeah, to the 60s or 70s, you've got, or 50s, actually, I think here in Durham, the neighborhoods that were redlined and not given mortgages, basically, were predominantly or exclusively Black neighborhoods. They weren't given those. If you actually go back and look at the charts um, or the mortgages, why they're denied, horrific things were written on them about a whole people group, um, not because sidewalks were bad or something that were written on it. So if you fast forward to nowadays, those houses in the red line neighborhoods compared to predominantly white neighborhoods are 40 to 50 to $60,000 lower in equity with the exact same square footage, trees, everything. Yeah. So that, that harkens to people either being able or not being able to build generational wealth. And I think when we understand that, it helps level the playing field, just like I think it's level at the foot of the cross and understand people more. I think it should also make us say, well, what can we do about that? Those are two really great points. And um, and again, I mean, going back to even just hearing your story and how you got into your line of work. So once you really got out of you know, schooling, which it's a lot of schooling for what you do. Um, <laughs> sure. And once you got out of schooling and you got really into the workforce and, and really beginning to work out the things that you learned, at what point did you start to feel like, okay, I, I think this is an area that I can actually make a difference. And you weren't, you know, because it's, I mean, for no matter what field or career you go into, whether it's teaching or it's, you know, the financial world, like once you get out of school and you're kind of finding your footing, it's hard to sometimes like sometimes you feel a little wobbly once you're in yeah. that career. You know, at what point did you feel, OK, I think this is this is the lane I'm going to stick in. And yeah. what was that? Well, the work that I was doing in Somaliland, we were there for uh, six years, just working hand in hand with the people on the ground of the children who need surgical care. And it was the data that led me to, oh, this is my lane. Because we went, you tease out the data and you get to one margin and then you go to even further to answer the question. So to, to give you an example, we found that there were quite a bit of children who were not getting to care when they needed to. So by the time they actually got to the hospital, it was too late to fix whatever condition they had. A lot of them were congenital anomalies that needed surgery real quick. But then you find out where they live 
Um, most of them lived really far away from the hospital. And then you talk to the families and you realize it's an issue of poverty. So it's it was almost trying to get to the depth of the story and honor the, their story that made, I just remember thinking, well, poverty is kind of the root of all of this. And that is the lane that I wanted to get to. So it was all the way back to the home when you mm. flash forward that way. But because of those findings, we also started advocating. I say we, the groups I was working with, or I still am, advocating for the inclusion of children's surgical care into universal health coverage schemes. So what that means is, you know, you have, um, same in the states here, if you have insurance, certain things are cut in or not. You out of out of pocket money for things that are not covered. The largely what is not covered in low and middle income countries are like surgical care or cancer. And it was bankrupting families. Mm -hmm. And so we started advocating for it and they had an opportunity to actually go to the United Nations and advocate it from the floor um, of saying, we need to take care of these kiddos better and protect them from poverty. So I, I loved that. I mean, the pictures of that is in the book as well, of being at the UN with my favorite collaborator friend. But I think realizing, telling the story correctly and honoring people's wherever they are, actually stopping on the side of the road can actually become some diplomacy issues. And I really enjoyed that. I'm going to take a quick break from my chat with Emily to let you know that my new book, If I Don't Laugh, I'll Cry, How Death, Debt, and Comedy Led to a Life of Faith, Farming, and Forgetting What I Came Into This Room For is now available for pre-order. And I would love it if you would head on over to Barnes & Noble and pre-order. You can pre-order wherever books are sold, but special alert is Barnes & Noble is going to be running a unique discount just on my book. So head on over to Barnes & Noble. You can pre-order it. It'll end up in your mailbox the day it comes out. So that way you don't even have to think about it. Or maybe there's somebody this holiday season that you would like to gift a copy of my book. You could gift it to them and let them know, you know, in their stocking or something that the book is on its way. It would just mean the world to me. It is my testimony. It's my story. The book is going to make you laugh. It's going to make you cry and it's going to make you laugh till you cry. I just pray that you're encouraged by it. And I pray that it's something that you just enjoy. And I pray you feel seen and known and loved through this story. And it would just really mean a lot to me if you would go pre-order it. So head on over to wherever you pre-order your books. Pre-order If I Don't Laugh, I'll Cry Now. And it releases March 26th. Back to my conversation with Dr. Emily Smith. Okay, so you get to be, you know, you're, you're in your lane. And then the world changes. Yes. And um, like I mentioned at the beginning, that's how some people may know you as the friendly neighborhood uh, epidemiologist. Um, so tell us that story is when yeah. COVID-19 hit and the world was changing daily and the world, you know, is, you know, in a lot of ways, like I told my kids, I was like, this is kind of like your generation's 9-11 is like, you're just yeah. always going to remember this. Um, like our generation remembers 9-11 and our parents' right. generation remembers the assassination of JFK and all JFK, of that. right. Yeah. And so how did you find yourself in the position that you were in? I mean, obviously you work in epidemiology, um, but things, you know, 
even things that we know today that we thought we knew three years ago, you know, and this isn't getting into all the policies and whatever, sure. but just like the thing, everything <laughs> just changed so rapidly. Um, yeah. How did you find yourself in that lane? Tell us that story because I think it's, it's really fascinating. Yes. Well, I, when Wuhan started happening, I mean, a lot of us epidemiologists, we just watch those things. When Ebola hits, we watch it. When bird right. flu hit, we just watch it. So Wuhan started happening and there was a whole lot of uh-oh in our community, in our community as in the epidemiologists and right. public health people, just because we we knew the potential. A lot of people knew the potential that something like COVID could happen. But, you know, I'm a mama too. And we have a golden retriever, like I'm as normal as can be. And people, my real life neighbors and family were asking, you know, what does flatten the curve mean? Or do I need to buy a billion bags of chicken nuggets to stock up or toilet paper? I mean, all we all remember those days. Oh, yeah. So I started the Facebook page, Friendly Neighbor, not Neighborhood. There's another Friendly Neighborhood epidemiologist. and She's lovely, but oh, I'm the neighbor. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yes, totally good. Friendly, just because I am a helper, just to, I just, and I'm very friendly. Like if I sit by you on a plane, I'm just sorry about that. <laughs> I also wanted to tell people in the friendliest way to help with the fear, help with the science. You know, I, I almost felt like I could roll up my sleeves and be like, this is my, I got this. Yeah. This is my lane. We're going to do this together. At that time, I thought it was going to be for a month, like a lot of us oh, did. Yeah. And then neighbor, because I knew COVID was going to be different than Ebola. Um, both are awful. Ebola, though, when somebody is contagious, you kind of know that they are already sick because they are very sick. With COVID, you don't know that you can spread it. You don't know you're sick yet. You know, you've got a couple of days where you can spread the disease before you even start getting a sniffle. So it would it would rely on us neighboring one another where well. It was named because of the science of the Good Samaritan, like right. be a good neighbor. Um, I'm also a person, you know, a pastor's wife. And so I thought this would be a chance for the church to really surround not only one another, but those most at need. And because of my work, I knew that the most at need were going to be vulnerable because of health conditions, but also because of poverty or lack of healthcare access. Yeah. And because I work around the globe, I knew that something like COVID could easily become a pandemic around the globe, not just localized. And so that would really require us to neighbor one another well. So anyways, I started it and who followed me was like my mom and her friends and a couple of my friends. Uh, my my son was asking the other day, mom, do you remember when you had 50,000 followers? I was like, buddy, I remember when I had 500. And I, I couldn't answer comments as much as I wanted to. Because right. before, you know, I just want to give a paragraph. So I started speaking in to, to help. We made a video for kids on what flatten the curve means with Hot Wheels uh, with my own children to help kids not be scared. We had to take it down because of security risk. But, you know, we were really just in it with the other families. And then when it started getting weird uh, faith over fear stuff, you know, when some people in the church were saying, don't wear a mask, have faith. I was thinking, what in the world is happening? Because I know the science is, no, we do need to like protect one another. And Masking is work, and I think that's being full of faith is masking. So I started writing about that to try to help pastors and, you know, people of faith 
redefine what it meant to be a good neighbor in solidarity with one another is not as individualistic. Um, and that's when I started seeing it go viral in the best of ways and in really bad ways. So the growth happened there. Then George Floyd was murdered and we talked about that. January 6th happened and we talked about that. Big prayer rallies were happening um, around the nation. And I was saying, gosh, as people of faith, I do not think that is faithful. Mm. Um, And so it really seemed to resonate people and just grew and grew and grew. Wow. Well, how did you, um, you know, because the reality is, I mean, I've, you know, the nature of what I have done in my career has been primarily on the internet for a very long time. And while I do not have a, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers, I've been living and working my life partly online, not initially even intentionally because I mean I started a blog before people even knew what blogs were I mean I remember in college when my roommate was like what is that what are you doing why why are you (laughs) doing that um you know and uh but with with growth of anything and then of course when you're you're doing things online um you know I always say that the the finest folks of humanity live in YouTube comments Oh, sure. The finest, the <laughs> finest. finest of our... With as much sarcasm as we yes, can. The <laughs> finest of people live in the comments of YouTube. But, you know, the reality is, is that as things grow, you are subject to the, sometimes the firing squad that can come. And so I'm just, um, I, I'm really curious for for you, how did you maintain sanity peace and um, and even just clinging to your faith and, and staying grounded as it grew. And inevitably, you know, especially when you're posting about something that is as divisive as yeah. <laughs> the pandemic, um, how did you stay sane and grounded during that time? Gosh, well, I'll answer with I did and I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was happening so quickly and so, I was writing, so I wrote daily, yeah. you know, for I think 500 plus days in a row without nearly, I mean, taking a break, certainly nearly on the weekends, unless there's something big, but it, it just came very, very quickly. Even the growth came quickly. So I don't think I quite knew what was happening at the time. I for sure was not prepared for the best part of the interwebs that mm-hmm. you were talking about yeah. at all. Um, had I known, would I have done it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think in a couple of years, I'll be able to say yes. But I don't, I don't know. Um, mm. So there is some good of not knowing and the rapid fire that I was just having to talk. You know, I think the rubber hit the road on the cost of what it means to be bold on what how I thought being a neighbor looked like. One day my husband came in and this is during, you know, when everybody was just home and he handed me a piece of paper that he had found in our mailbox written, you know, in marker of like red and black color, just full of Bible images stuff, like the mark of the beast, and also laced in with some really heavy threats to my family um, and mm. to me. And I I just kind of ran out of the house thinking for some reason they would still be there and that I would do something. Yeah. <laughs> but the mama bear in me just went, no, because until then, people can say horrific stuff online. And I do want to say that that is awful. Mm-hmm. You know, there, I had people already sending pictures of guns or Holocaust imagery to me. 
Um, and it's incredibly scary and uncentering, destabilizing. But when it comes to your home where you your children are playing in the front yard, it was awful. And it was it's still awful. Um, and that started a little bit more of people that I knew, either people in my neighborhood or at my church, or we were in Texas at the time, um, in my city, sending just horrific stuff about me and my kids mm. um, to my about my kids, like hurting them. And that was really hard. I think, how did I keep my sanity during that time? I thought that it was going to end at some point. And so I just kept going. Uh, we certainly talked to people that we knew we needed to talk to, including authorities or, you know, people that needed to know. Um, and it didn't stop or people quit standing up for what we were going through, mm -hmm. people that we knew. So I think at the same time that was coming, it was a loss of like real friends um, and family and also a faith a faith group, you know, that was the time when I was seeing like Michael W. Smith, for example, at the prayer rally um, in Washington, D.C. at November 2020. That's at the height of the pandemic where thousands of people were getting sick and dying. This is pre-vaccine. And there were just tons and tons of people there. And I was thinking, what? I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. So I don't think I realized exactly what was going on at the time, but my body was definitely keeping that score when you fast forward to Easter of 2021, I did this big um, push where I was uh, posting every day, more of a devotional type during the Lent season for Easter. And I remember about a week post, I was um, thinking, gosh, I think I'm really anxious right now. Like something feels weird in my head and I didn't know what it was. So I thought, let's go do yoga <laughs> and see if it helped the downward. I did a downward dog. And then my head just exploded to a headache, a migraine, a thunderclap. You know, we're not quite sure that just hung on for 15 months without help. Mm. Um, and months and months and months of just being sick in bed. So I think I held it as long as I could until my body said no more. Mm. And, you know, I wanted to put that in the book because the book has the first section on centering, which is what we've other, we've talked about already, but it's a middle section on cost. And it's just two chapters of this story, the tip of the iceberg of it, because I just didn't want it to be a tell-all. But I wanted people to be a little more prepared for the cost. The last part is courage on it is worth it, but the cost can be heavy too. So how can people maybe protect themselves from what I went through enough? Mm. Well, first, thank you for sharing so honest, honestly and vulnerably, um, because I know that, that that is challenging and that is really hard. And, um, you know, as you were talking, I was just thinking about the fact that, and, and I don't know if you've thought about this, um, and if you have, forgive me, um, but as I was listening, I was just like, there was a time where you were the person on the side of the road. And I yes. just wonder, like, right. who was... Uh, who was the good Samaritan for you? Mm. Well, that part will make me cry <laughs> <laughs> and, and laugh. <laughs> oh, Lord. I mean, I think I even have in the book, I found myself, I mean, the, the good Samaritan story had come full circle to me. Yeah. Um, I think my husband, mm. bless it. He was on the side just with me, but he was certainly, I mean, he had to shoulder a lot of that mm -hmm. uh, with the kids as well. 
at the same time, I found a new community. And this is the beauty, at least, of the Friendly Neighbor Epidemiology page. Because around the time of Easter, when I got so sick, I did start seeing people from the faith perspective, they get go to two different camps. One camp just dug their heels in even further and just became really awful. But then another camp started saying, oh, I've never seen poverty like this before, or I've never seen systemic racism or structural violence or things that I, I talk about in the book. I haven't seen it before, but I sure do want to know more and do something about it. Mm. That So the book is written for them. It's the what next part. Those are the people who, when I saw them rise up in courage and take some risk themselves at great loss, I just have hundreds of stories of that they have very generously sent me on some of their own losses. It helped me rise in my own courage. Mm. It also helped me realize there's a whole other group of people that I can be friends with or I can worship with or, you know, that will come along beside me. And it that was very needed because I just felt like I had lost more than gained. And for a while that was true. But they, I think they were the ones on the side of the road to pick up and to help. Mm. And in a large part, that last part of courage was written for them and what they showed of how they, how can we actually show courage in our everyday life? Mm. Well, that was going to be my next question is, um, you know, even though, yes, COVID is, is not going anywhere. Um, and But, you know, in a lot of ways, we are on the other side of the pandemic. I think people would yeah. say that for the most part. I've had COVID like three times now at this point. Oh, no. <laughs> just been like, oh, but now at this point, I'm like, ah, I don't know. The flu is worse for me at this point. <laughs> but I'm like, my, my immune system is so like, ah, we're doing this again. Okay, cool. In any event, I understand that that's not everybody's story. Um, but uh, I like how you said that the what's next. And yeah. and the other thing too is, and, and I think even unrelated to pandemics. Okay, let's just look at this from living the Christian life the importance of living and walking out the Christian life, pandemics aside, how do we best look at this from a practical perspective? Because I am not an epidemiologist. My yes. husband, not an epidemiologist, although like he probably could be. He's very smart. He can just do like whatever he sets his mind to. Um, but he's a financial <laughs> advisor. Um, so not an epidemiologist. He likes numbers. He does That's like good. numbers. Yeah. yeah. So... Right um, but how do we as believers, as Christians, walk this out and answer those two questions? Yeah. And, yes. and how, what, 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 what is next for us? What does this look like on a very practical, fundamental level? Again, pandemics aside, but just going about our, our, our Christian lives. Yeah. Before I answer that, you bring up a great point that I, I want, I, I'm trying to just tell everybody this book is not a COVID book. Oh, because sure. I just can't. Yeah, I can't do it for 200 pages. No, you're <laughs> like, no, no, it, I can't. Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, uh Nope. And the you are right that we are past the hardest, like the scariest part. It right. is. Anyways, it's just not a COVID book. So I don't want people I don't read those because I can't handle it. Mm -mm, so pass. I'm not going to write it. It's also not a science book. 
Yeah. Um, so you don't need to know about the Krebs cycle to be able to read it, but it's also not a faith book. So I just wanted to, it is a Christian faith that I write from, but at the beginning of the book is um, where you can see the love your neighbor through the five major religions. And then at the very bottom is my kid who said, just being a good neighbor, that's a good human. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that during the pandemic. So that's my little disclaimer of what it is or it's not. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, that's good. Yeah. Well, because I, I didn't want it to be exclusive just for the, the Christian faith, because that's just not that's just not what it's for. Right. Um, yeah. And not the followers that I have, for sure. What is it or what is it? Um, what's next, basically? Like, how can we do that in our everyday life? Gosh, you know what I wish that I could do is like a top 10 list of nail these and we're good to go. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? It's so much heart work. Mm. of recognizing racism or bigotry or poverty or equity. It's, you know, I chose to make the first part of the book around those type of buzzword questions, climate change, because those were the ones that when I would talk about of how to be a good neighbor during the pandemic, that's what got the most really negative and good reactions. Like how how do I recognize actually talking about equity, I think is holy. Because mm. I think when you hold those words up to the sky, they reflect heaven mm. or what heaven should look like. Um, so some of it's just the hard work. At the the last part, the courage part, it gets a little bit more practical of how, how at the Thanksgiving table, if something crazy comes up and or contentious, not even crazy, but contentious, how could you enter in the conversation with someone who might completely disagree with you with data um, and with history to actually be a good neighbor? So it's not even very practical. The, the very end has an appendix of here are my top four tips of buy a map, get some post-it notes, read a whole lot, and here's how to use Google Earth with your kids. It was yeah. such a fun chapter to write because it's practical. But a lot of it is really challenging how we talk or how we other other people. Mm. It also challenges from an American Western standpoint, how we talk about health. You know, when, when we, we consider health for our children, we want them to be fully healthy, thriving, happy, live out their full potential. So why don't we want that for the rest of the world? And we can get there. How do we get there? You know, there's, there's conversations about that too. So it is practical, but it is very challenging. But I wanted it to be challenging because I think when we can wrestle with those hard topics and get our heart changed, we intrinsically will just stop by the side of the road instead of walk by. Yeah. And, and honestly, the more, you know, I, the more I walk with Jesus and the more I, try to learn from him. And the more I study even the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, um, and it really wasn't until it was the year before last in my, um, so I do something called Bible study fellowship. And um, so from, you know, from September through May, we study one thing and we were in the book of Matthew and it had, you know, so much of what I had read and studied. I mean, I was like, oh, yeah, I've read this before, but it was the first time that I had ever really sat down and you had marinated in this in this text for, you know, what, nine months, 10 months. And at the heart of it 
was the heart. And, mm. and I know that, you know, the Bible says, you know, God looks at the heart and, you know, you know, you know, man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart. And then, but then it just like, once that came to the forefront of my mind of realizing that at the end of the day, that's what Jesus cares about is our heart. When I began to really r- r- realize what that means, I saw the entire rest of scripture through that lens of just like, yeah. that's what it's about from, I mean, at the beginning of Genesis, all the way through, like, I mean, I just, I think about like, if you go all the way to the very beginning, you know, and after Adam and Eve, they, they bite the apple and then what do they do? They hide. Yeah. And then, but they hide from God. Like you can't hide from God. And when God's asking like, where are you? He knows where they are. And it's sure, but it is a heart issue. And it is, it is really not, he's not asking, where are you physically? He's asking like, where's your heart right now? And your heart is not centered on me. It's not focused on me. It is now it, your heart is focused on shame and embarrassment and running. And then that thread just goes all the way through. And then we look at Jesus in the gospels, like, he knows the hearts of everyone he interacts with. And, you know, I think about even like this week I was studying um, the woman at the the well who was a Samaritan. And so I yeah. see a lot of those common threads when he's looking at, you know, the heart of these people and he's looking at the heart of this woman. And on the surface, she was on the margins. You know, she'd been yeah. divorced multiple times. She was a Samaritan. So she was already like a political outcast because the Jews hated the Samaritans because, you know, they had intermarried with people from other religions. And, but at the end of the day, like he knew her heart and he knew about her heart. And um, so when we really begin to examine our own hearts, which can sometimes be, well, not sometimes is really challenging because when we sit and we're honest with ourselves about like, am I actually being you know, a good neighbor, or am I actually thinking about other people? Or am I just thinking about myself or how this is going right. to look or whatever? And we examine our own hearts and we take a, a self, you know, a personal inventory. That is where that's where you, sometimes you uncover things that you don't really want to uncover. But then right. you can really begin to do real lasting change. Um, because you can change behavior. But if you haven't actually changed the heart, the root of it all, and you really haven't accomplished anything. Yes, which is why I was so adamant on that first part of the book. Because that the first part is about centering correctly. Because then we get it all right. It's the and also. Mm-hmm. It's given money, but it's and also everything else yeah. changes so that we just live a life of neighboring. Mm. Man, Emily, this has been so good. Um, we are running out of time and I could just ask you 157,000 more questions. But before we go, are there any kind of final thoughts or words of wisdom? Um, I love the your chapter on wisdom, worship, and Olaf. Um, and we didn't even really get to even talk yes. about all that. Um, the story of Nehemiah, so good. Um, so basically what we have to say is everybody needs to go get this book and read it. Um, and I love the disclaimers that you provided. Um, but lastly, right. any words of wisdom um, that you would share? And then obviously, how can people best connect with you, get your book, all that? The last thing I would say is I hope the book makes people laugh for sure. Yes. There's a lot of, but I also hope it makes, it helps with some courage because mm. it is hard to live a life in neighboring. It's hard to, to have the wisdom to know 
what fight to go to and what not to. That Nehemiah chapter was my favorite to write. So yes, I hope people like that one as well. But there's only so much that we can do. Um, at the same time, that's our fish and loaves that can be multiplied. I've just been thinking about that a lot lately. And so I hope people just have courage to be fully them, knowing it's enough, but knowing it is also like enough, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's also a neighbor. I, I just think more and more people have a heart that they want to be a good real neighbor at the end of our life. You know, who was the neighbor? I, gosh, I want it to be me instead of always asking, am I who, who is my neighbor? You know, mm-hmm. I want to ask the right questions. So I hope it gives people courage to be able to do that with some laughter along the way. Mm. And I'm on all the socials uh, as friendly neighbor epidemiologist. I also write long form on a Substack for people. I do what's called a neighbor Tuesday. And I just write how to be a neighbor in our world today through data at the most random of days, which is why I chose Tuesday. Mm. Oh, I love it. Emily, thank you so much. And uh, we should get thank lunch you. soon since we live so for close. Sh- I'm just saying oh, we should, for sure. should do like, uh, have you been to press? No. Does it have tacos? Because I love tacos. Okay. So I love tacos. Okay. So Nuvo Taco. You love Nuvo Taco? Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. The reason I ask press, and this is for people that are listening that are in North Carolina, you should just make the drive to Durham. Okay. So full disclosure, I went to press for the very first time like a week and a half ago. So it's in downtown Durham near the ballpark. And it is like a crepe place. But I had never really had crepes before. Again, Uh however, they have sweet crepes but they have savory crepes. And I got the carne asada crepe, which has like, we're talking carne asada. We're talking avocado. We're talking salsa. We're talking the whole shebang. It's basically a taco, but in like a tortilla pancake situation. It was delicious. Anyway, we should get lunch at at press sometime. (laughs) I am there. I would love that for sure. Yes. All right. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you. I hope you loved this conversation. I hope you loved everything that Emily had to say, please go follow her on social media, buy her book. And um, I would love to know what you loved about the episode. Would you let us know on social media? You can find me at still being Molly or at can I laugh pod on your social networks. And would you head on over to whatever podcast app you're listening to this on? And would you click that subscribe or follow button and take a moment to leave a review, which really, really does help us to know how the podcast is personally helping you. And it helps other people to find it as well. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the team at Third Wheel Media for producing the show and for you. I hope something this week makes you laugh till you cry. We'll see you next week.